All right, good morning, everybody. So the ways you can follow along, we'll do the screen thing. Chase is going to clip us along. Chase is giving me thumbs up back there, so we're good from Chase. I also printed out the passage, and it's in um, Jamie Lachlan, or Jenny, if you can wave your hands. It's back in front of that. Jamie is holding it up, so if anybody wants it, you can just raise your hand. Maybe Jamie will pass it out. And then, obviously, uh, bring in your Bible yourself. We may get another screen up here next week, but pretty much this is what we're looking at. And as a way to follow along, just want to encourage you um, to pick one of those. And obviously, you can go on your phone as well, but however you're going to follow along. And as I've done, uh, we're going through Luke. So I try to stay in Luke, particularly in the Gospels. There are parallel passages, and it's pretty tempting to hop around. I try just to stay in Luke. It's not that there's not other things of meaning, but to keep it straight on. And I also try to stay, if we go into the Old Testament, um, that's probably the only place I will jump. I won't do a lot of cross-references. And if you're curious about them, I have them in my notes. I can show them to you. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for Luke's diligence in recording it. And I ask that you bless us, fill us with your Holy Spirit. May you illuminate the words that they may touch our hearts and be um, deposited in our minds that we may go forth and live in according to the accordance with the good news of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So we jump right into the calling of the 12, this is called. And so they, they are called three different things throughout this passage, the, the 12, uh, the apostles, and the disciples. And at some point we'll talk about those words, if not all today, but we will note those and talk about them. Calls them together. And he gives them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. The power piece may not have been that unusual in the, in the area. Uh, as we read into Acts, same author, Luke, he talks about some other people who aren't Jesus followers that have power over this, the unclean spirits. Um, that, so the power part might not have been new, but the authority was. Uh, you'll remember Satan tried to give authority to Jesus and in an illegitimate way, and now Jesus is now giving that authority to the disciples. And he sends them out to preach the kingdom and to heal the sick, and he says, take nothing for the journey. This is a little different than the instructions that he gives in Luke 22 about taking things. So we can draw some principles out of the take nothing. Um, there are some good principles. I don't know that it's a repeated thing. I don't know if we're only allowed to, you know, carry this as we go around life and feel guilty about anything in your closet. But this is a, a, a one-time thing, I think, and so we can learn a few things from it. One, this authority idea, that may have been clearer in the Old Testament times or in Jesus' time than it is for us right now because you would have authority of a king and he might go with, say, your ring on you know, his ring on your finger or going in my name held a little bit more. Uh, in the United States, we, we vote in the authority, so it might feel a little bit different if you were in another kind of government that someone says, I'm in the authority of the king. That might have meant a little bit more. We might have more of a context for it. But going out in Jesus' name is the main thing. And they're sent out to cure and, and heal. So twice it's in there in that way. So they're, they've got Two things, imagine just like what it's like as your disciples, um, like thinking about this. You've got Jesus who, who tells them this. Imagine being one of the disciples. Chase, you can flip it to the next one. And he gives some more instructions, and he says, um, uh, 
He says, whatever house you enter, stay there, don't depart. Whoever will not receive you when you go out of the city, shake dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed, and they went through the towns. They preached the gospel, and they healed everywhere, it says. So one idea, why not move around? Uh, one thing might be, you know, if you come to a certain place and you stay, it might be an insult culturally if you went and stayed in another house. Uh, so that might have been one of the reasons that they did it. It also might have just let them get settled as quickly as possible. You, you all know what it's like to travel, and you finally get to the place where you can set your stuff and, and get in a rhythm and know where you're going to sleep. It might be easier to minister. Remember, this is all new to them. And the idea of shaking off their dust, I mean, we, we don't do that necessarily because we don't wear sandals as much with dusty feet, but you can picture the kind of, you know, we would... Uh, maybe wash our hands of you, or we, we have other ways that maybe we shouldn't repeat in church of saying, I'm done with you, but there are hand gestures that work, you know, it's not like that, but it's just some definite, hey, I'm out of here, um, you didn't listen. So they depart. Now imagine what it's like for Jesus. We have not seen the disciples, I'm not saying they didn't, the scripture just, Luke doesn't include any examples of them successfully doing any of these things. So they ha he, we don't have examples of them preaching or healing at this time. The one that we do then later um, in Luke's telling, the disciples try to cast out demons and they fail. So I don't know how many of you in this room have taken a child to get a learner's permit. Now, imagine doing that and then coming out of the DMV and giving the keys to the car to the new kid with the learning permit and saying, see ya. Just think about that. You have been in the car, many of you, when that learner is learning and you're not ready necessarily to cut them up to go up 95 and cross around DC. You know, there is a certain time you let them go, like my dad wanted me to learn stick shift, so he sent me with an address into Manhattan and to come back with something for our restaurant. <laughs> and he said, by the time you get back, you will know how to drive stick shift. So there's a little bit of that. Um, I've adopted a little different parenting style than that, but, but imagine the learner's permit. I mean, Jesus is sending them out. We know from later accounts they don't do so great with stuff, right? But this is even earlier. So imagine Jesus sending them out. Well, imagine what he might have been thinking. The disciples, imagine them heading out, looking back. Is he really sending us? Is this some kind of test? Is, this, is he really going to join us? Is he going to you know, walk across the water and meet us over there? What's going to happen here? No, it looks like he's sitting down reading a book. I think we're it's us. We're going. So imagine what they talked about the first hour. You know, how are we going to do this? We've only watched. I mean, if any of you have tried to cook something that your mother or father cooked and you stood around it a long time, it's a whole other thing when you're the one with the thing on the stove. So it's different. The disciples are suddenly in this. They may not have signed up for this. They may have signed up just to follow Jesus around, and this is a change for them. So imagine just what it would be like for them. So they are um, heading out. There's a couple words in here that will become words in Christianity. So as they come up, I'm going to note them. So one of them, when it talks about in verse 5, you know, as a testimony, that's the, in the root word, the root word martyr. So we recognize that. But wit witness or testimony, the word martyr. 
and that became more famous as a definition of a person as years went on. So one of the more famous definitions of a martyr, and this is how you know this experiment from Jesus worked, because he leaves, maybe it's 33 AD, there's a, I love reading the early church writings, and there's one um, description of the martyrdom of Polycarp, his name is, and he is 86 years old. The, there were different times throughout the first couple hundred years where the Roman government turns against Christians. This is one of those times, and he's 86. He gets dragged into a Colosseum, and he is asked at first uh, on the way in, in the stagecoach or whatever their carriage they're riding in, would you please just renounce Christ, proclaim Caesar, and, and be done with this. You're an old man, just let it go. He, does, he doesn't do it. He gets to the stadium. Then um, the guy there tries to talk him out of it. And Christians at that time, surprisingly, were called atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. So Christians were atheists. So one of the things that um, the, the, the account records was that the guy in charge of the execution says, look, all, just he try, he's imploring him, just please, 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 and just renounce it. Say away with the atheists. And the crowd is screaming for his death now. And apparently he looks, um, and he looks at the crowd and says, away with the atheists. Bring on the fire. And he dies. Um, and he said, I'm, the Lord has been faithful for me all my life. I'm not going to deny him just because of a temporary flame. Because there's a much longer one waiting for the rest of you. So he dies, and that's witness. So martyr, when you hear that, as those who uh, were followers of Jesus, especially in the Greek-speaking world, they would have seen that word, and it would have meant a little bit more to them testimony than us. Um, but martyr was tied with that, that it might cost you a whole bunch to maintain your testimony. So um, the, the message that they're there to teach, they're preaching the gospel. That's something else that we're going to hear. Um, there's a word preaching in there or teaching. And the gospel, the kingdom of God, is something that we're going to talk about. So as the disciples head out, they obey him. They go. It says they go through the villages, and, and, and they're healing, and they're preaching. It doesn't say they cast out demons. Yeah, I don't know if they did or didn't, but it doesn't say anything. So what I tried to think about was, had I been one of the disciples, and I think it's good for us to, sometimes when you look at history, you, you may forget that when you're in it, you don't think you're in history. You don't think you're living in antiquity. You're living what's right in front of you. Uh, we know what happens with the disciples. But, you know, as you look back, what were the disciples thinking about? Imagine yourself in their shoes. What did they know? When Jesus said, preach the kingdom of God, what did they know? So for the sake of this exercise, and I would encourage you to do it as well, I just looked in Luke at the passages that Luke had written thus far to think all they could say was what Jesus told them. Now, we don't have everything that Jesus said to the disciples written for us, but what would you have done if Jesus had sent you out with that group and it was your turn to talk and you were supposed to preach the gospel, what would you have said? I could not imagine preaching the gospel now without talking about the atonement and the substitutionary death of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, but that had not happened yet. And I think it's it's overly hopeful to think they would have understood those concepts and been able to explain it when it was their turn to teach the gospel at this moment. So, a couple things looking back. From the 
Simon, remember at Simon's house, I talked a couple weeks ago about the woman who came in um, and wiped Jesus' hair, uh, feet with her hair. We know that forgiveness is available. There is this, you are forgiven. No matter how, how bad your life has been, you can be forgiven. There's this judge not idea, because at this point, they would have heard some of those things about not judging. We're in a cafeteria right now, a middle school cafeteria. Tomorrow, they will be in here for lunch. There will be a fair amount of judging going on this time tomorrow. Think about it. Right here in this room, there'll be a fair amount of judging. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Because the judgment you give is what? The judgment you get. And so right in here, the realities are going to hit. Because it's very tempting to judge. When somebody's different, you judge. And you know how sarcasm works. You know, people that get good at cutting people down. Many of you have been in these middle school cafeterias. And no matter how long it goes, you can remember what it was like. The judging is going on all the time. You wear something slightly different you get judged. You say something, you spill. Imagine somebody who's kind of shy spills right here on the way out of the cafeteria. What's the rest of the group going to do? Hopefully, some will help them. Hopefully, one of the best things you can do to judge not is just look the other way, not, not point at it. But if someone spills right here, odds are some kids are going to do what? Laugh and point. And then that person is just so embarrassed. And I bet you each of us has stories of the crowd judging us because we did something foolish or something happened. What if the world had learned in the last several hundred years how to not judge each other and parents had trained their children so well that when they got to this room, it didn't even occur to them to judge? That teaching is out there. Imagine how liberating it would be to live in a judgment-free community. That's good news. That's good news of the kingdom. Forgiveness. Well, the way Jesus was, was um, quickly transacting in forgiveness, it, it was, you know, a God thing, first of all, but it also could translate into human-to-human -human relationships. So, again, put yourself right in this cafeteria. One of the quotes that when I first became a believer, I don't know who said it. I, could, I forgot to look it up, but... Um, but it says, to forgive someone is to set the prisoner free only to discover the prisoner is yourself. To forgive someone is to set the prisoner free only to discover the prisoner is yourself. Put yourself at table right here. They're, look, they're right back there. Put yourself at that table, and you're sitting there, and this is how it can play out. Friday afternoon, you're a seventh grader. You're sitting there. Um, you, you think, you hear somebody mention your name and laugh, and it, your friend is at the table, and you look over and see your friend laughing, and you think your friend has mocked you. And then the school ends, you get on one of those yellow buses, you go home, you don't talk to your friend, you're so mad because you are sure that they made fun of you in front of a bunch of people, and you're thinking who was sitting at the table, and how could you betray me, and you don't talk to that friend all weekend. You show up here Monday. Your friend comes over, hey, how come you didn't return my text? And you have been now from Friday to Monday morning building a case and remembering the other time you thought they laughed, and you, you have this anger built up, and you unload. 
and your friend's like, uh, we weren't talking about you. We were talking about this guy in a TV show that has the same name. Well, you thought, as you were laying in bed on Saturday night, you're like, <clears throat> you know, and laying in bed is when they're like, I'm going to punch, you know, you're verbally punching the person and replaying the thing. I don't know if you've ever laid in bed and there was an interaction where somebody offended you and you're laying there and you finally sort of come to peace with it and then you think of another nuance of it and you're like, ah, and that, oh, I can't sleep now. I mean, I'm so mad, right? And you're laying in your bed and verbally you're punching the person. What's the person doing right now? Are you punishing them? They're probably asleep, right? So forgiveness even has a benefit for yourself. Set the prisoner free. I mean, we get so bound up in holding accounts. And Jesus, remember, some of the things that were interesting is that Jesus, when this woman sinned, he says your sins are forgiven. She must have caused damage in other people's lives. It'd be difficult to be a great sinner and not cause damage in what apparently she was doing to other marriages, right? But Jesus just says your sins are forgiven. The, the contract doesn't mean you don't need to go back and ask forgiveness of others. But primarily, when I sin against another person, I've offended God. And that's a little different. It's a different perspective. It'd be like um, Josh and Charles. Sorry, you can sit in front of me. Use an example. Let's say Charles, who, who would never do this, obviously, uh, takes money from Josh. And I find out about it. And I would say, Charles, you're forgiven. You're set free. Right? Well, Josh would be like, what about my money? It's like, no, no, it's set free. No, that would be a different way of thinking. But this is part of the kingdom. The kingdom is our sins against each other are primarily an offense against God. So that could have been something they talked about. Another one that, that would be interesting to me is Luke, um, is, uh, Luke 640, where he says that every student who is fully trained will be like his master. It's in there. If you want to look, look up Luke 640. I doubt they would have known much to do with it. I don't know if Christians today know much to do with it. But the hope is that there is a sense that if Jesus is our master, we can become like him, that we could grow and become the kind of person who is becoming like Jesus. And I, I just saw Eric Couch. Eric, are you in here? I'm not going to call you about anything. But he was there for that, and Kirsten was there for this. It was our first missions trip with the youth group. And we were in West Virginia, and we were painting houses, and we were talking about how this was a discipline of serving other people. And we did this for a couple days, and we had one girl on the trip, um, quite outspoken, and you'll know who it is, Eric, but don't call out the name. She's like, why are you people so hooked on this becoming like Jesus thing? I don't get it. Okay, this is where we're starting here. Um, but we are supposed to want to become like Jesus. And then, uh, you know, there are a number of you that were in the youth group back in the day. So this story, I'll tell you who afterwards who said this one. But we were talking about um, Luke 6.40 and what's the motivation for Jesus to become like Jesus? I mean, isn't the gospel just the get-out-of-jail-free card? I mean, aren't, isn't it, you know, I come to some acceptance of faith that Jesus died for my sins and I confess my sins and accept him as Savior and then I kind of put it in my back pocket like a get-out-of-jail-free card and I try to come to church about three times a month and give a little, bring a friend every now and then, not sin too much, and then we live the American dream, right? We just keep living. No, there's a motivation of becoming like Jesus. And so I was trying to get this across to you guys when you were younger, and there was a girl that was 16. She's like, I figured it out. I have figured it out. This is how you need to teach it. She said, look, you know how when you go to King's Dominion and there's the roller coasters, and then they have this little yogi bear, and unless you're as tall as yogi, you can't ride the ride. 
And she said, look, that is a certain measure of maturity in Jesus. And the ride is life. Like, if you're not big enough in Jesus, instead of the roller coaster being fun, it's scary. you got to be big enough in Jesus to really live out what he's telling. So growing in Jesus, like it's part of enjoying this life. And she said, want to know something else? She said, you know that big bar they put down on you? Those are the commandments of the Lord. They're supposed to keep you in place. But if you're too little and you turn the curve and start going down, those things start smacking you in the face. Because not only are you freaked out, but you're supposed to be anxious for nothing. And all those teachings, rather than holding you in place, are, are working against you. So part of the good news they could have shared, they probably wouldn't have used the Yogi Bear thing, but they could have said, hey, the good news is we get to become like Jesus. And we've been around him for the last several months. He's a pretty awesome guy. I would love to be like him. And then you get the house on the rock thing. You know, they could left out. I guarantee they were saying Jesus said and our, our rabbi said, all that kind of stuff. If you do what he says, your life, no matter what happens, is going to weather it if you do what he says. So those are, there are others. I just wanted to pick a few for us. Chase, you can flip it. So, um, so then the next one talks about Herod and shifts gears and Herod hears about it, Herod the Tetrarch. So I thought, um, this is why it's confusing with the Herods, because there's six of them. There are six Herods that I could figure out. And since they're part of the story, we're going to take a minute or two to learn the six. I mean, if you watch Lord of the Rings, you've got to know who kind of the antagonists are. The antagonists in the Gospels are some of the Herod people, and it's a little confusing. So Herod the Great, he's the first one. He's around for the birth story, and he dies about the time Jesus is born. So he's kind of out, but he is in there for the beginning and the ordering of the attack on, the, on Bethlehem. Then um, Archelaus is in there, and he's only briefly mentioned because he's in charge later, at, right after uh, Herod the Great. But remember, Joseph is in Egypt, and he's going to come back to Judea, but he realizes Herod, Archelaus, is, is in charge there and decides to go to Nazareth. So he impacts the movement of the Herods really impact where things happen. So um, they leave Bethlehem because of Herod the Great. They don't end up going to Judea. They go to Nazareth because of the next Herod. And remember how that was part of throwing people for a loop because they had a, he had a Galilean accent instead of a near-Jerusalem accent? So it impacted. Next one is Herod Antipas. He's the one that kills John the Baptist. He's the one that interacts with Jesus. Jesus calls him a fox. So he's right there in the, in the mix of it. There's Herod Philip that we don't hear much about. He's north and east of Galilee, and, and he's not really that involved. Next two show up, though. Um, Herod Agrippa, he's the one that kills James, the brother of John. And he's also the one that imprisons Peter. And then the Herod Agrippa II is the one in Acts 26 that Paul interacts with. And, there's, and he seems to be slightly open because he talks about Paul. He said, you might convince me to become a Jesus follower. So... Um, those are the Herods. Take time to know them because they'll show up again. And Herod says, you know, John the Baptist I beheaded. So is, is John the Baptist risen from the dead? It must have been unsettling for him a little bit. He's perplexed, it says. Uh, is it one of the old prophets? And, and remember, Luke is really pulling this old prophet theme. He's, right away, he has Jesus connecting with Elijah and Elisha. And so, could be one of those. Elijah and Elisha did similar things to Jesus. Here's a few things they did. Um, they had power over nature. 
They multiplied food and they raised the dead. So Jesus is doing those things, has already done some of that, which would have made him think that. And then maybe he teaches like some other um, prophets. Isaiah talks about how um, he'll swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. So there's this kind of setting things right. And then um, Jeremiah 9.23 is one we'll read. Um, maybe I think I'll skip that one today, but it's a perfect one. Um, well, I'll just remind you of it. It says, not, let not the... the um, it's the wise man boast of his wisdom, the mighty man boast of his might, or the rich man boast in his riches. I might have got them mixed up, but um, it's brains, uh, body, bank. Like, don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom, um, the brains, body, uh, the rich, uh, the mighty man boasts boast in his might, and the rich man boasts in his riches. But if you're going to glory in something, glory in this, that I am the Lord God, exercising loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the, church, in, on the earth. Think about tomorrow. Will there be anybody in here bragging about their bodies? Probably, one form or another. Somebody's showing off what they just bought this weekend. Probably. Somebody's showing off. Remember I did the marijuana example in here, taking hits a couple of weeks or months ago? Um, th that will happen a lot right here. Humans are still bragging over their relative allotments of brains, body, bank. And so um, Jeremiah taught, don't do that, but seek first righteousness. And Jesus, you know, will, he teaches that there's a different kind of life out here. And so Herod may have, um, I don't know how familiar he was with the scriptures, but he might have drawn back and said, this guy acts like Elijah and Elisha. He teaches a little bit like Isaiah, maybe Jeremiah. Is that who we're facing right here? All right, so go ahead, um, Chase, you can flip that one over. So um, the apostles return in verse 10, and when they had returned, they told him everything they had done. We don't get to hear much about it, and we do get to hear more in the next chapter when the 72 comes, so I'll leave it for there when we get there. But we don't get to hear much. Um, he takes them aside privately so that they can be in a deserted place. It's a good idea. We don't, we don't know how much success and failure. It says they healed everywhere, so at least some level of success happened to them, and that must have been awesome for them to say, I prayed and someone was healed. Incredible, but we don't hear any details about it because then the crowd shows up. And if you've ever been like a kid who comes home and you want to tell your parents something, and you finally get them to sit down, put the dishes down, stop talking about the trash or the heater or whatever they're thinking about, and they're paying attention to you, and then the phone rings or somebody else comes in the house, and you're like, okay, there went my window to talk. That's probably how the disciples felt. Like, okay, these people follow us like paparazzis. I mean, I can't. We're just like, we just did this big thing. Like, can we not talk about it? Can we not have a little privacy here? So that's not what's happening. Um, and then Jesus takes the opportunity to teach the kingdom again. So when Jesus taught, there was a, a present reality and a future reality. So those are, um, those are two things going. And as we go through kingdom teaching, we keep those in mind. There's a present reality of how you can act right now. You can be forgiven, and you can act certain ways. And there's a future reality. So for our church, we can hold those things in mind. I mean, it'll be easier for us because we're about to move. We won't always be here in the cafeteria. We'll hopefully be meeting over there. So when you say Grace at Mount Ellison or Grace Church or whatever name we kind of nuance we settle on. Um, we will um, 
we will have a sense of a building over there. So we've been meeting with architects and I can tell you that the plan is more timber framed, you know, more light, uh, rock, um, bigger, you know, open thing. So I can tell you some of the positive things, the lots of outdoor space we're going for. I can tell you some of the negative things, just like the wipe away tears. If you enjoy fluorescent lights, get as much of it as you can now. Because for me, they're mood wreckers and migraine makers. And so I am hoping and there is not a single fluorescent light in anything we build from here on out. So when you get to Grace Church and you say, tell me about Grace Church, if you can think of nothing other than they do not use fluorescent lights, that is fine. That can be our distinguisher. I can live with that. So there are aspects of who we are that will and will not be in the new building, but we are not there yet. There are current aspects of who we're becoming that are very present. So when you think of the kingdom, we can think of, you know, what kind of people, what is grace like? We got this, uh, you know, and with moving, we've had a lot of families that, and over the last couple of years, that used to go to the church that now don't. So um, we will hear from them often as they go. And one of the nicest ones was uh, a couple that, that's not going to come all the way over um, from Forest. And, but for a year, they were here, and they were coming out of a ministry uh, leadership, and they were tired, and they came to Grace, and they said, it was so restful to be in the presence of you people. She said, one time, you know, it was all we could do. They had, I think, four kids and a newborn, and, you know, we'd show up 20 minutes late. So they go, one time, we forgot to put shoes on our kid, and we came in, and no one said a word. Nobody said anything. And how welcoming our group was, you know, so... Could that be a present reality of who we are, that we're welcoming, that we're, we're not judging? There are present aspects of who we are that are representations of the kingdom. And again, there's a the future side. So as we move forward, be thinking um, in those concepts. What does it mean for us to do what Jesus called the disciples to do? How do we go out? Do we travel? I mean, I can think of two families in this church who in recent years have left and traveled and worked, um, either traveled to campgrounds for numbers of years. So we can do that. We could all decide, you know what Grace does? Everybody sells their homes. We buy campers. We're obeying the Lord because you cannot be a disciple of the Lord if you don't travel from town to town because that's what the scripture says. And we are the only ones who truly obey. So we are all selling our homes, buying campers, and going all over the U.S., we could do that. All you closet people that have been watching tiny homes, all you people that watch tiny home shows up till COVID, and then you sat in your house for a long time and decided, maybe not with my children 24-7. But we could do that. We could do that. But if we're not traveling village to village, and some neat stuff happens when you do travel, to those of you who do the campground thing, it's a great chance to meet a lot of people. We probably won't do that, most of us. What does it mean for you to go out in Jesus' name and be a disciple, be a sent one, especially as you hit the fall. That's when you can start to change um, some of your patterns because most of us won't change our location. We could change our patterns so that we're interacting with some more people. But what does it mean for us to go out? What does it mean for you to preach the gospel of the kingdom? And what does it mean for us now? You know, Jesus, I, um, he, ministry was probably three years 
Grace has been in ministry for three decades plus, so it's going to be a little different. Um, Jesus didn't have children, so having small children and going out in Jesus' name would be different. Each of us have different opportunities, but now's the time to think about it. If Jesus is sending me out, what does that look like? How, well, how would I share the gospel? What would that look like, teaching the kingdom? How do we collectively, as a group, do that? What, how are we growing as a group? So one of the things that we're getting better out is outdoor events. We're just getting quicker and quicker at setting up the tents, have an event, um, you know, we can do that, create an atmosphere and be some kind of place that people can come. So those are some little thoughts of doing it because when Jesus sends out the 5,000, he first tells the disciples to feed him. And then when they take an effort, they offer something, Jesus multiplies it. And I want to be part of offering something and seeing Jesus multiply it because we want to give God the glory. We want to eulogize him, as the, as the word says, and bless him. So, Kirsten, do you want to come up and pray, and then uh, I'll tell you what happens next. One of the things when we read the scriptures, and there's all these really dramatic things going on, and we can tend to think that was like for them in those days. And we can mistakenly not realize he's moving that way in our midst. And one example we have is of going out in Jesus' name and watching him drive things out in darkness was when we first started going to Kiram House years and years ago in Mexico. And we went for our first summer. Some of you were there with us as students. And you could feel the darkness in the neighborhood. If you've ever been in a place, it's invisible but it's very real. It felt almost like the weather, like it feels outside right now, damp. It felt like that, but dark. And I re remember saying, please don't anyone tell me what it is. I don't want to know what's going on because we were there with our three small children. But I do know we're going to lift up Jesus' name. And so we worshiped. And we worshiped some more. And we prayed. And we prayed some more. And I prayed like a scared little kid because I I have a pretty good flight instinct. Brian teases me about it. Like, if there's danger, I'm like, I'm out of here. And so I was like, that's not going to work if we're going to run a ministry in this neighborhood. I can't flee. So I hid. I hid in the Lord's name. And his name is powerful. <laughs> so our first summer, we're there, right? This is how dark it felt. Emma was four. Every night, Deb was there. When it got dark... Emma began to scream. She's four. It's dark. She started screaming. Every night, you probably remember, right? Every night that first summer, Levi woke up. He was one and a half. I'm not exaggerating. He woke up almost every hour to every hour and a half, all night long, every night, all summer long. <laughs> the kids felt it. They didn't even know what they were feeling. It was that palpable. The reason I'm sharing this is not to like congratulate ourselves on surviving it, but to actually proclaim Jesus' name is powerful. That's what Kiram House felt like. Any of you who have come in recent years, most people's description of Kiram House and being in Nogales is like one of peace, like it's a thin place, a place where they experience the presence of God. Well, what happened is Jesus drove out the darkness, and everyone who was involved in the darkness in that neighborhood either turned to faith in Christ, moved, or died. It was incredible. We were not experts at it. We just lifted his name up. His name is that powerful. His name is that powerful in this building. 
as we lift up his name, he is moving things. He is shifting things. And it's more than these green chairs and our little walls. But there's a spiritual aroma that we are leaving in this place and that you are taking with you everywhere you go. Where you begin in your school year and you are in a hard place in that classroom with your kids or in a hard place at work where it feels like things are just tough, you have Jesus' name. We now can just say, hiding in the Lord, bringing his glory into places shifts things. So I just want to pray for all of you and maybe put your hand on one another. You know the hard places you're going into. Um, We want to just be glory bringers, aroma bringers of Christ, and not be afraid of darkness or just frustrated where you think, well, there's no way this is going to change. This is the way it's always been. I don't know. Everybody who was involved in the darkness became a believer moved, died. Ask the Lord to bring in his light and bring it in through you. It might not be that dramatic. It might be more dramatic. So I'm just going to pray for us, um, just trying to bring this down to the like place where we all are at in our places of work and in our homes. So Lord, we lift up your name. We hide ourselves in you. And we trust you. And we know that your name has great authority And though we are small, you are mighty. And so, God, I ask your blessing over every single person in this room and the places they're going in your name. Would you bring light, powerful, life-changing light through them in their workplaces, in their classrooms, at the park with other moms, kids, in the hospitals, in their neighborhoods when they're walking and just greeting neighbors and friends. Would you bring your light even more fully into this building, Lord God? We thank you for the privilege of being sent out in your name, and we lift up your name and praise it. Amen.